Talk. Identity. And access. Management. Welcome to the Identity the Center podcast. I'm Jeff, and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? I'm good. I'm feeling my Marty McFly from Back to the Future. <laughs> feeling that groove today. Why is that? And that is because of our special guest, who is actually already living in Friday, yet we record on our time on Thursday. So pretty cool stuff. I'm afraid that we're creating some sort of like time space, you know, continuum paradox by recording in the future. So let's go ahead and let's do damage to the timeline. And uh, let me introduce uh, Mark Perry. He is the APAC CTO at Ping Identity, and he's based out of Melbourne, Australia. He's also a huge Richmond Tigers fan, and he's been specializing in the open banking standard for the last couple of years. And that's a topic that we're going to get to later on as part of the show. So welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you very much, guys. Great to be here, and uh, hi to your listeners. Thanks for coming on. So let's talk quickly. Australian Australian Football League, Richmond Tigers. I know they got a, a winning record. Um, what are your thoughts on their season so far? Yeah, it's been a, an interrupted season because of the COVID-19 crisis, but um, they've won their last three games. They're looking really good. And for those who don't know Australian football, it's a unique game to Australia. And um, it's a very uh, dynamic game. The ball is always in movement and um, my team likes to be chaotic and, and move the ball forward whenever they can to score. So it's really worth looking out for if you get a chance to see some Australian rules football on TV. I catch it every once in a while on TV here. I, I'll be honest, I don't know all the rules. I always find it fascinating, entertaining to watch that and things like rugby, et cetera. But I think if you want more information around Richmond Tigers, you should follow Mark on Twitter, because he's a prolific tweeter about each of the events that they have. <laughs> Absolutely. So I know you've, you you we want to talk a little bit about some of the Identiverse presentations that you've given, and we'll get to that in a second. You gave one back in June. You got another one coming up here in the next day or so, uh, I guess technically next week, uh, July, or, yeah, July 28th. Um, why don't we start, though, with our traditional question, which is, how did you get into Identity and Access Man? Yeah, it's really interesting to look back. I've been in the IT space for 30 years now, but I got into computers when I was at high school and they had an Apple II with a cassette tape attached to it. And that's my, my entry into computing. Um, I did mechanical engineering at university and gravitated towards the computer-aided design and the, the programming requirements that we did there, which was a bit of Pascal, a bit of Fortran and so on. And then my first job was at IBM, where I was a pre-sales engineer, and that was very much around AIX and the Unix side of things. And I guess identity back then meant et cetera, password and NIS, the, uh, the yellow pages and that type of network-based identity piece for authentication. And then I moved to Netscape in 1997, where I got introduced to LDAP directories via the Netscape directory server. So I did a lot of work in that and with uh, my work in consulting there. And um, from there, moved to Sun Microsystems, again, built on that uh, time, um, went to um, Oracle and then I've ended up at Ping for the last well, nearly eight years now and very much around federated identity, the authorization pieces and how that part of the industry is built out over time with 
OAuth 2 and OpenAD Connect and entitlements and a whole range of things that we could have only dreamed of back when it was just logging into a, a single machine. I love how we, we have these conversations and uh, a company like Netscape will come up and like, wow, I haven't, I haven't thought about Netscape in a little while. Yeah, and they were hugely influential in the the enterprise software piece, which I worked in. And of course, the browser is what they're known for, but they had a whole lot of um, server software that a lot of people in the industry actually used or, or started out with. And that was their first introduction to web servers or LDAP servers or mail servers. And yeah, they've got a great lineage to, to talk about. Right. And the Netscape directory, I think, was known for its ability to, to scale into you know, hundreds of millions of records, correct? Yeah, yeah, we did a lot of large um, projects with that. I remember doing one which was about 13 million um, entries for uh, actually the Yellow Pages here in Australia, and that was back in, it would have been about 2000, uh, which was pretty big for those times. And then in Europe, I know we were doing things in the hundreds of millions of entries for telcos. So, yeah, very much that huge scale that we, we take for granted now with consumer identity. I want to pick up on something that I noticed on your LinkedIn profile, and that was around a product that I guess you designed and implemented a home networking monitoring solution for parents and others. I'm just reading, you know, here from from LinkedIn. Um, I guess what what is that? And seeing as though that was back in 2012, 2014, somewhere in that area, what, you know, what were some of the identity concerns that you had as part of that? Yeah, it was an interesting project. I did get a, a home router and it was because my children at the time were getting into teenage years and I was worried about what they might be looking at and the router that's provided by my ISP didn't have any filtering capabilities at all so I bought an extra router to put in line and then I could start to see what was in the logs but I thought how about I I build something where I can set up the members of my family and then provide different limits on you know, what devices they use. So the, the kids would try and sneak their phones into their, when they went to bed so they could keep using the internet. So uh, we um, basically wrote a little front end um, that enabled you to drag and drop devices onto different users and set up limits on those devices. Because it was kind of an early type of entitlements management thing for internet access. Sounds very much like, yeah, I mean, that was... You know, that, uh, the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of services like that being built into routers. I know Netgear has something like that where you, you know, basically do like web filtering, you know, permissions, et cetera. So I just thought that was interesting when I saw that kind of jumped out of me. I was like, huh, I wonder if that's what I think it was. And it sounds sounds like it is. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I like to tinker with software. I think it's valuable to keep those skills up. And uh, whenever I get a little project like that, it always leads me into new areas of thinking. And often I you know, can reincorporate that into my day job as well. So let's talk a little bit about the Identiverse presentation that you gave, let's see, June 15th. It was called Stop Blaming the End User, Using Empathy and Understanding to Deliver Better Identity Experiences, which is a long title, <laughs> but it was a very good talk. You know, Jim and I have both have both seen it. Um, and I think there were some really interesting takeaways uh, that, that came out of it. Before we get into some of the questions that Jim and I had, do you want to just kind of recap real quickly, you know, what it's about? And then uh, we'll definitely have a, a link to that, to the Identiverse website, see so that folks who are listening, if they want to check it out, they can. Yeah, sure. I, I think as technical people, we're often very focused on serving a couple of different masters um, when we go to implement 
identity solutions. One is the security aspect, and we're required to meet certain security aspects. And a lot of the time, those are make it difficult for the end user, you know, complex password requirements, the requirement to continually change passwords, um, being able to do two-factor authentication and so on. And then there's the other side of it from the marketing folks or the, the customer retention folks who really want to make it easy for the end user and not provide that level of friction in the user experience. And so we have a trade-off between the two sides of that. And I really want identity people to think in terms of the end user and to understand what technology there is to enable less friction in the identity experience where that makes sense. Um, and then I went through a number of different aspects of that from user registration to um, authentication, multi-factor authentication and you know, passwords and so on, just highlighting some of the areas that really need to be focused on to understand how to make a great user experience for an end user. I think the topic of user experience is just getting so much traction. Uh, I call you a user experience guy. I think of myself as a user experience guy. I know Jeff is as well. One of the things I'd say, one of the themes in your talk was think like an end user. And I'm wondering from, in your words, what does think like an end user mean? Yeah. Um, we are, we're technically savvy people. We've been working with computers for, in you know, my case, for probably 40 years now. So we understand the background of things and why things are done certain ways. But um, what we have to design for is really the, the person who's coming to this without that experience. And that might be your elderly parents. It might be your younger children. It might be your spouse or other people who are used to now a great experience on a mobile app. Um, we need to be able to understand what they want and what they expect and be able to match that in not only consumer-facing identity um, systems, but also increasingly in what we use at work because there's a younger generation coming into the workforce who have never used a green screen or never logged in through um, systems that are uh, much harder to use than their iPhone. So uh, being able to think like those people can generate more uh, um, user-friendly but also provide you know, better experience um, for those people. You know, I think that generational thinking is a really important part of identity access management because the expectations are so different between, you know, let's let's take, you know, from someone who isn't as familiar with computers um, versus, you know, someone who is grown up in on them, right? iPhones, et cetera, and certain expectations that each have as to the way things work. And then sometimes it can make it very difficult to make you know, product design and security, you know, uh, decisions uh, as far as how things should work. Um, one of the things that I thought was very interesting uh, was around this concept of friction when it comes to identity. And, you know, there's always the, I want, you know, no friction, low friction experiences for my users coming in and we'll make it really easy for them. And one thing I thought was really insightful for me, at least, was you mentioned having a little bit of friction is good because it demonstrates a security can you talk a little bit about that point that you were making in your in your talk? 
Yeah, uh, I think that people are now very aware of issues in terms of identity theft and, and phishing attacks and the, the regular sort of attacks we see out there. And if they were to go and log into something that they, say, haven't used for a few months, and um, this, as soon as they hit that web page, it automatically logs them in for some reason, then most people would probably think, hey, hang on, I haven't been here for three months. Why did I not have to authenticate myself? So, you know, they may be able to do that with, you know, some sort of NFC type arrangement on the device, um, but that may not be a great security experience for the end user. It might make them worried and generate um, calls or, you know, Twitter messages or things that you as a company would have to handle. So the ability to authenticate them in a way that makes sense for their context, but provide just that level of assurance that, hey, we recognize that we know who you are, but here's a barrier you have to get through the door this time, um, provides that a bit of um, security for their, their mind, really. And Mark, one of the things in, that you talked about um, was like kind of the first gate that people have to go through with a, a new web application or web application they haven't been to before, which is the registration process. And it can be so annoying. And you talked a bit about progressive profiling, which has kind of, kind of become a buzz term. Can you talk about what progressive profiling is and how it can be used to improve the user experience? Yeah, sure. I'll give the example of a project I worked in the late 90s for a free email service here in Australia. And um, when the user registered, they had to fill out three or four screens worth of, you know, information about themselves. And it was quite intrusive, you know, how much money you earn and those sort of things. And um, there was a, a big um, take up on day one, and then it dropped off. And there was actually a... a um, an article in the, the paper reviewing the service that said you know, this service is very intrusive in the information it, it requests of you as the end user. And we're all now worried about what that information and how it's stored and how it might be used by third parties in conjunction with those services. So the idea with progressive profiling is to get the user in the door as quickly as possible, generally just to set up a credential or to log them in through, say, social media or what have you. And then on each subsequent access to the application, ask for a bit more information so that you can start to build a profile, what you might need for your own marketing or um, your own working in that application, um, such that you progressively build out a view of the user and um, not annoy them and not make them worried on that initial registration step. Yeah, you know, and another thing that um, is kind of tangential to that is around consent. So you're talking about collecting this information from people. My question is, you know, I'm obviously I'm a, a privacy and identity and access management person, but I wonder what are they going to do with this data? And I'm going to talk about, you know, one of the things that really annoys me is if all of that information is hidden away in some privacy policy that I don't want to read. Um, but, you know, maybe you can give the listeners a, an idea of, what is the what is the area of privacy and consent, and how does it affect identity and access management? It's a very interesting topic. That topic that's growing. It, it really is coming to the fore now. We've had the the Cambridge Analytica um, scandal a, a couple of years ago now, and I think people now are well aware that 
information that they provide is being used for purposes other than for that particular service that they've signed up for. And like you say, it's buried, you know, consent for that is buried in that huge ter terms and conditions document that no one reads. So uh, I think there are moves uh, around the world to provide for more informed consent. And that means being able to say to the end user in a very uh, easy to understand way that these are the, this is the information we're gathering from you and this is how this is going to be used and do you consent to this? So not just a blanket statement, but actually writing down what we will gather and, and how we will store that and what your rights are for deleting that information or requesting uh, that it no longer be shared with third parties. And so consent management is quite a broad area now. I like to think of it in terms of two aspects. One is the business level consent, which is, yes, you can email me and, and send me offers and so on. And then more fine-grained transactional consent, the sort of things that we see in open banking where, yes, this third party can see my account uh, transaction details for three months um, based on this account and, you know, filtered by this requirement. Right. And there's a lot of uh, legal... Uh, drivers for now requiring companies to gain consent, you know, with GDPR. And I, I guess I wonder what you're seeing with a lot of the customers that you work with. Is that affecting how they go about designing their, their systems? It is. There's a lot of discussions about how that is managed in identity solutions. And certainly in all of the RFPs I've been doing over the last 18 months to two years, that's been one section that has to be covered off. And again, it, it varies wildly between customers, what they actually want to do with consent. But and there's always acknowledgement that we need a way to capture consent. We need a way to store that consent and possibly make use of it in other applications or other systems downstream. And then we need a way to enforce consent when the end user goes to do something or where a third party is acting on behalf of the end user in a, an API environment, so. Is there a particular service that you like the way they've done their consent management for their users that you can point to? Mm, that, that's a really interesting question. Um, look, I've, I'm very close to what's been happening in the open banking space here in Australia. And at the moment, it's, it's quite high-level consents. You don't have the ability to say, yes, you can access my account transactions, but only the transactions that are you know, on my credit card um, that are going out to third parties. You can't see, for example, in my savings account what my salary is or whatever. We don't have that ability to do very fine-grained consent yet. But the work that is being done in the, the standard space around that um, will lend itself to that in the near future. And I, I do really like how the Australian effort has gone. I think that the language being used is quite simple. Um, it's not a huge number of screens to go through. Uh, it's something that is still very early days, so we will tweak it as we go, but it does lend itself to some, some interesting situations when it comes to transactional consent in the future. You can see some of the challenges that would arise from this. So if I was given the choice to let third parties see my balance information, and I would say probably 99% of the people are going to say no. 
right? But that is something that's a huge value for the company. So it's it's kind of being in the balance of, okay, if the company wants to have that ability, if that's providing a, a significant amount of revenue that makes it so that they can provide the service, um, they have to have to balance that with if we make it very clear to the person that they're going we're going to do that, they're going to say no. Yeah, exactly. There has to be some value for the customer, not just you can only use this service if you give me all this data. Um, you know, example here in Australia with open banking is uh, applying for a mortgage and being able to allow access to your your financial data, your savings accounts, your credit card accounts for the purposes of uh, evaluating your mortgage application, uh, which means that the bank only really needs access to that data for a day or two. Um, that is real value to the customer. I don't have to go and photocopy bank statements or export PDFs out of my internet banking system and email them and all the rest of what happens in a mortgage application. Um, there's real value there. And if we can, again, provide very fine-grained control over how long that consent is available for and then regulate what happens to the data after that consent period is over, that gives the user... Uh, some real security around how their data is being used. You know, I think about it from an access perspective and the, the different applications that are out there that could take advantage of this. Um, you know, at least in the U.S., I know I'm, I'm thinking of the ones that I use, you know, personal capital, uh, digit, capital with a Q, right? Acorns, um, there's things like Robinhood, et cetera, that you can all tie back to bank accounts, you know, being able to authorize that in a way that makes sense for the user and then be able to track it, I think is really important. I know we're going to talk here in a little bit about your next Identiverse talk around will user experience kill open banking? Uh, but before we get too far, we've mentioned open banking a few times here. Can you give us the you know, 30 second to two minute elevator pitch of, of what that is? Yeah, sure. So if you look at today's financial services environment, we have fintechs and, and other startups who are building applications and services and they need access to financial data, which is generally held by the banks. And the banks mostly don't provide easy access to that data for third parties because of the security and privacy risks involved. So in order to provide more competition in the financial services industry, there's a worldwide trend towards creating open standards-based APIs to allow access to that data. And on top of those APIs, of course, you need the whole security component. So you need a standard way of authenticating, which is generally now an OpenID Connect hybrid flow. Uh, you need the ability to provide consent during that process. You need all of the pieces around that on how to um, you know, populate and validate the tokens that are used in that flow. And then third party can then operate on behalf of the end user to use the APIs provided by the bank. And we call this open banking because the APIs and, and the standards are open, but access to the data is not generally open. So all of the participants, whether they be banks or fintechs or other third parties, generally need to be accredited to play in this space. So is this a, a global standard? I guess, where is this kind of like in the timeline of of where it fits with something like OAuth or OpenID? Is it relatively new, having just been you know, for a couple of years, or do you see it being more prevalent? It's rolling out around the world in a, 
in different timeframes depending on the maturity of each um, regulatory area. So the UK have been now in production for a couple of years with open banking and they were really the ones who pioneered the standards around that. And they worked off a um, standard called FAPI, which is the Financial Grade API, and have you know, made some tweaks around that to suit their own environment. Uh, then in Australia, we've just gone into production in the last month with uh, our open banking standards, again, based around FAPI with some minor tweaks there in some instances. Uh, we've got other jurisdictions like Singapore um, who are working through that in much the same way, but again, uh, working around OpenID Connect and with some geographic changes to that. And then the US is working uh, through their own um, industry-led uh, standard, um, which is more based on everyone working together cooperatively rather than being pushed into it by governments like it has been in the other jurisdictions. Uh, that you know, provides a, a kind of an overview. There are many other countries who are working down this path, but pleasingly, most people are working around the standards that are out there. And um, you know, we're trying to keep up with that and provide solutions that meet all of those different requirements. So, Mark, is it likely that we're going to end up with different standards by different in different countries, or is there, do you see in the future that this kind of comes together for a global standard? So one of the things that that concerns me is that, at least from a privacy perspective, it's like oh, the state of California can come out with a new privacy standard, and there's GDPR, and I know China has some standards, and and so everybody's going off and spinning up their own privacy standards, uh, it makes it very difficult for companies to know what do we need to do. I'm wondering if, if you see open banking going down that same path or if there's going to be kind of a coalescence of, of the standard. Yeah, I think that each, each country or jurisdiction will actually be different. Uh, like I said, it, there'll be an underlying similarity around OpenID Connect and, and possibly FAPI. Uh, but there'll always be tweaks to those standards to suit um, individual geographies. And, you know, one could say that each country is trying to, you know, keep uh, global vendors out by providing these type of um, specialist changes to the standards. Um, but, yeah, I think that in the, main, in the main, we're looking at an environment that's going to be very familiar to people who use modern identity solutions based on OpenID Connect and um, JSON Web Tokens and so on. So there'll always be individual tweaks needed, um, but in the main, we can work across geographies uh, based on those standards. Do you see other industries um, adopting a similar approach or maybe saying, hey, we could uh, leverage open banking, say, in healthcare? Or it, is this going... I mean, obviously, with, with the name open banking, it's focused on the banking industry, but do you see other industries making a similar move? I do, actually. So in Australia, we actually have an idea that this will go across the, the entire economy over time, and we call it the consumer data right, which is more than open banking. Uh, we started with banking, but they've already begun design of the standard for the energy sector, so that retail uh, energy vendors will need to be able to share customer data so that we can start to use that to evaluate different offers and, and possibly be able to change accounts easier in that sector. Uh, Telco is another one where that may make a lot of sense as well. So we can start to see 
uh, aggregation services that pull in telco data uh, from different providers and be able to provide different offers to consumers. Uh, it could be healthcare, although of course that is very fraught with privacy and um, other you know regulatory aspects. But in terms of data sharing across accredited healthcare recipients, um, that's certainly a possibility as well. So can you give us a, a, a teaser of what you're going to be talking about on the 28th? When you say, will user experience kill open banking? It's asked as a question, but I have a feeling <laughs> that you may have an answer somewhere hidden there. I do, and I, I don't want to give away the answer yet, but uh, <laughs> you'll have to have to tune into the Identiverse talk when it becomes available. But yeah, I see that a lot of the learnings we've had out of open banking efforts in the UK and Australia and other parts of the world uh, are that user experience is the most important thing to adoption. Um, again, you've got to think like the end user here, and if they're wading through a whole lot of screens and having to authenticate themselves in you know, a web channel when they're using a mobile app, uh, it's a really bad experience for people. And open banking is opt-in. They're wanting to use a new service, but if the banks are making it hard to actually do that data sharing, then people will opt out. They, they won't um, get to the end of the, the initial data sharing flow. So it's really important to look at this from all aspects of user experience in open banking. And I talk about how this has been handled in the UK and Australia, especially uh, because they're the two I know fairly well. And we look at basically some of the technology solutions that have come out of the experiences there. Yeah, so Mark, one of the things you talked about in um, in your other talk was, you know, passwords. It's the bane of our existence, right? If you've been an IAM practitioner for any period of time, and I think everybody who has to deal with passwords kind of hates them at some level. Um, what are some of your key learnings for IAM practitioners to make the, you know, dealing with passwords and having to have your users use passwords? What are some of the things that they can do to, um, remove the pain from that process? I think that we have the ability now to remove passwords entirely in a lot of cases. So and we use Slack at Ping Identity and uh, one of their ways of authenticating you is by emailing you a, a link, a magic link that enables you to authenticate yourself into different Slack um, instances. Uh, really makes it very simple. I don't have to remember a password for every single Slack instance that I have set up because we use Slack not only inside Ping, but we use it for collaboration with our implementation partners and our customers and so on. And I've got probably eight or nine different Slack instances and who knows what the password is after you haven't logged in for a couple of months, for example. So I think those sort of experiences are things that we can bring to the table as practitioners. And as long as you have the right security posture around uh, the right context, then they can make a big difference to the end user. And, you know, the fact is that this makes a big difference to the company as well who's implementing this because they have less um, help desk calls for password reset problems and, you know, should potentially remove a lot of the issues with phishing attacks as well. Yeah, at a similar level of annoying, of, of the annoyance caused by passwords is security questions, knowledge-based authentication, but 
you know, particular security questions to identify yourself to say do password recovery. Um, what are some of the some better ways to do that? Yeah, look, knowledge based authentication is is dead as far as I'm concerned with social media so prevalent. I don't think there's any way you can say that knowing what the first car I had was is any way um, of telling that it is actually me requesting a password reset, for example. Um, if you look at what's available now, you can register a device with the end user um, and you can send them uh, you know, a one-time passcode or you can do a passwordless authentication flow there um, based on a smartphone app, for example. Uh, that's a much better way of authenticating someone than a you know a piece of text that can be um, fished or, or socially engineered out of them, and um, uh, I think those sort of methods have to become mainstream in our uh, industry. We have to move away from uh, bits of text that have to be entered into a web channel. One of my least favorite examples of knowledge-based authentication, I'm going to call them out right here, is United Airlines. Oh, do I hate the, their knowledge-based authentication for uh, adding, you know, a remember me to the device. I mean, it's, it's favorites, it's questions that have predetermined answers. I mean, it's <laughs> everything that's wrong with KVA when it comes to a uh, device. So I hope someone from United is listening and they fix it or reconsider that approach. Sorry, Jim, go ahead. Off my soapbox. It's great. No, because that's exactly the uh, example I was going to use is using KVA as a second factor. Um, kind of flies in the face of what multi-factor authentication is. Uh, and Mark, while we have you here, I know this is going to seem pretty basic, but maybe you could explain what is multi-factor authentication and um, what are some things that people think are multi-factor authentication but really are not? Well, that's a really good point. Um, so generally when we authenticate someone, we need them to provide some credentials that uh, – help to prove that they are who they say they are. And traditionally, that's been a unique identifier like a username, uh, whether that's an email address or a member ID or you know, a customer number or what have you. And it doesn't really matter as long as it's unique with uh, something that they know, which is a password, something that you know they set up themselves or is provided to them and that they have to memorize. Then... Of course, that information can be, um, if we only have the one step for authentication, then the attackers will go for that particular method and, and gather the information from the end user. It turns out passwords are actually pretty easy to get out of people with uh, phishing attacks, for example. So if we add additional steps of authentication, uh, we can help to mitigate that risk. And traditionally, the second factor in an MFA solution has been to provide a one-time generated passcode, which may be numeric and may be alphanumeric, and that is sent through a separate channel to the user. Uh, so it's not provided on the same screen that they're logging in on um, to provide the username and password. It's sent via an SMS or it's sent via uh, an email or it's you know a push notification or what have you. Uh, and then, you know, some systems require additional authentication after that, and that's where multi-factor comes in. Uh, but generally, those second and subsequent steps are something that you have, uh, something that's provided to you that is unique for that particular transaction. 
increasingly now we all have uh, devices that are you know, very strong computers with security enclaves in them. We can uh, use the biometric devices on them. And so we can use what you are as an authentication factor as well. So a fingerprint, a facial scan, and so on. And using those three vectors, we can build an authentication scheme which meets different levels of security posture and hopefully um, has the right level of user experience to keep the end user happy as well. You've been very generous with your time and I got maybe one more question we can talk, we can uh, talk about here before we wrap up. And that's, I'm really curious as to the differences that you see in identity and access management in the APAC region versus some of the other areas that maybe you have some experience in. Are there differences or do you see different, you know, focuses on different components of the IAM world, maybe access management versus identity governance, or are they relatively the same no matter where you go? Yeah, my role is um, Asia Pacific. So I I deal with Australia, New Zealand and and Asia as well. Um, But I have done a lot with my colleagues in the US and Europe. So uh, I think generally speaking, if you look at identity projects in the US, they tend to be very much line of business. Um, Whereas I think in Australia and, and this part of the world, we tend to look at identity projects as being much broader as part of a, say, digital transformation program of work. Um, That's not to say that we don't do line of business projects here, but I think with the the type of um, budgets that we have and the size of the teams, it tends to be oriented more around much broader than just a a single line of business requirement. Um, Also, that different technologies are at different levels of maturity in different geographies. So in Australia, we're very much moving ahead with API-based things with microservices and and so on. And the identity requirements around that are much different to say your, your standard um, workforce t- type of identity management solutions. Um, and you know, it tends to be different requirements depending on where an organization is in their life cycle as well. So we're seeing a lot of cases now where some of the older solutions like, um, you know, CO SiteMinder and, uh, IBM Web Seal and, and even some of the Oracle technologies, the legacy ones, uh, are tending to be replaced now by newer solutions because people are requiring OpenID Connect support or um, other capabilities that aren't provided for in those more legacy solutions. So, you know, worldwide, it does differ in terms of the focus. I think that most people are actually converging to the same point, but some are, are moving there more quickly than others. Do you see a difference in the way that people who are in the identity space may be you know, looking to make purchases that they justify the spend to make the investment in the technologies? You mentioned digital transformation. I know a lot of projects try to, a lot of IAM projects, I should say, try to kind of stick to something like a digital transformation to get the funding they need. You know, hey, in order to support this, we're going to need this. Do you see different ways that people are doing that? Yeah, I think it's generally acknowledged that if you have a technical outcome in mind, then you're really going to find it hard to get funding. I think that what we see generally is people who engage the business uh, and work through business requirements um, with business outcomes are more likely to get funding for their projects. And that could be as simple as highlighting the need for a better net promoter score, for example, in a consumer uh, environment. So looking at how um, 
how the, the C-level execs are actually remunerated and tying the benefits of your IAM solution to that can start to unlock uh, budgets for projects. Uh, the other side of that is where you've got security and audit issues and you've got a, an immediate need to get things, to get the holes plugged. Uh, if you can, again, tie your your project to those, then you're more likely to get funding than if you just want to, um, you know, put in the latest version of, of some software. So, uh, again, it, it's very different depending on the, the industry and, and the customer, but we see that most of these projects succeed because they tie back to real business outcomes instead of just a technology outcome. That's very insightful. I appreciate that. Um, and I certainly appreciate your time. Before we wrap up here, um, Jim, do you have anything that you want to uh, throw out there? No, I, I agree with what you said, though. I really appreciate Mark's input. And, you know, the open banking is has been a topic where, you know, I didn't understand it. I think I have a much better understanding of how it works and why it exists after this conversation. So thank you, Mark. Mission accomplished, Mark. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. All right. So we're going to go ahead and call it for this week. Um, we'll have a bunch of links in our show notes that people can uh, look at in their podcast app. We'll have links for Mark on LinkedIn there and uh, the link to Identiverse. Make sure you go and check out his talk that he gave on June 15th around the stop blaming the end user. And then his upcoming one coming up on July 28th, Will user experience kill open banking? I'm going to be watching so that I can figure out if I, if I think the answer is in my mind or not. <laughs> so with that, we're going to head and uh, close it out for this week. Uh, if you want to get for information on the show, you can always visit identityatthecenter.com. You can follow us on Twitter at IDAC podcast. And uh, with that, thank you, Mark, for your time. And we'll talk with everyone in the next one. Take care. You've been listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. For more episodes, visit identityatthecenter.com.